Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is something of an industry veteran, and uh, I think his intro of himself could last the first 45 minutes of the show, but um, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, no pressure there then. Um, yeah, I'm Andrew Groves, uh, a professor of fashion design at the University of Westminster, and I'm also the director of the Westminster Menswear Archive. Now, that was an incredibly short intro for someone who has a pretty, pretty long uh, list of achievements and, uh, th- well, things you've been doing. Uh, you got into the fashion industry in quite a young age, I imagine. Yeah, well, I suppose like most people, I've uh, Growing up in the early 80s, I became really obsessed with fashion and clothing and music. And I think back then, the way to access that was through magazines, so magazines like The Face ID. And I think the thing I learned from there is you had to be in London. You had to be where fashion was happening. Um, so one way or another, I decided I had to get to London. And whether that was to study, to work, or just to enjoy London in terms of its fashion and nightlife. Um, so I got drawn from the south coast, Lewis, near Brighton, to London. And I've sort of, on and off, I've been here ever since, and that's late 80s onwards. It's interesting you sort of mention the 80s and music and fashion, because that strikes me as a period when fashion and music were incredibly linked and incredibly polarised, and you were either that way or that way, never in between. What were you? God, I was everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I think you you never know the period where you grow up where where you're in your teens whether you're lucky or unlucky you know I think particularly in the 80s you were lucky in terms of if you think of the rise of video so you were suddenly having music that was uh dressed and costumed so it was visual how music actually visually looked and the demand at that time then for all those bands to have a different visual look from each other meant that there was such strong looks um so from culture club and that androgynous look to uh, rockabilly to i don't know spandau ballet being in kilts it seemed like everyone was having an um a different approach to dress and dress became really, really important. And that dress could change week by week. Um, which thinking of that time, you know, I think that seems quite normal now with the internet, but the way that dress changed because people wanted to change, not because they were seeing other people, but because they just wanted to constantly reinvent themselves. So I think if you think of every youth cult, I think I've, I've, done all of them do you know what I mean <laughs> I've been a skinhead a rockabilly a casual all of them one time or another because I think they're such strong iconic looks I guess it also strikes me that during that time yes we saw videos but fashion must have been moving a bit slower than it does now um I don't know it's, it's odd that thing about how fast fashion moves or not because I think what we've got now is a lot of imagery that goes past us very quickly on phones and, and, you know, media. But does our fashion, what we wear, change as quickly? And that might be a thing of getting older because I think we develop our own sense of identity and style. But I also think people consume fashion now visually through imagery rather than necessarily just by wearing it. So I think there's a lot of that consumption where you might look at the latest show so the McQueen show yesterday, for example, you've looked at it at five o'clock and five past five, you've 
dismissed it because you've seen it and you've consumed it and you don't necessarily need to wait for the cloves. So I think that's a, new, a really interesting thing, that thing back in the 80s where you might see something, but it wasn't available. So you had to go somewhere. You had to go to very specific shops in London. And then you probably had to save up. You probably tried it on, then you saved up for months. You know, the idea of saving up for something and those things would still be in the shops months from when you first saw them. You know, it's unheard of now, isn't it? Things are, things drop. You know, there was a drop today from Adidas and by two minutes past 10, they'd gone. <laughs> and you can now buy them on eBay for 10 times the price or whatever. Yeah, completely. They're already on eBay. So that that's sped up, I think. Um, but maybe not how we consume in terms of how much or how much we change, maybe. Yeah, we consume as much, if not more, but how much we change within that, I think it's not changed. I know from my own teenage years living in the extreme north of Norway that fashions from London were at least a year delayed. Right. At least. And if you could sort of sneak off to London, which cost a fortune, you could actually beat everyone else by a whole year. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you don't get that now. With Danielle, who's our curator at Archive, she's from New Zealand. She's always saying the delay in getting magazines to New Zealand from England. And then when you did get them, it was the wrong season because the seasons are different meant that your sense of where you were within fashion was quite complex. Um, and maybe if you're living somewhere like London, it's much more immediate. So you're seeing things before they're in the magazines. Do you think that's a pressure of living in London that you have to be bang up to date all the time? I, I, I suppose it's that thing you can create fashion. Funnily enough, I got contacted the, the other week by someone I used to live with 20 years ago and we were, he was reminiscing about some of the things we did and, and one of the things I remember distinctly we did somehow we got an article in the Evening Standard about a nightclub that we ran even though we didn't run a nightclub but we just <laughs> we just thought it would be quite amusing to have a bit of press saying we ran a nightclub and they did a whole feature we dressed we had a look we went to a building that was a nightclub and almost you could almost create the idea of fashion just by, you know, thinking about it, I guess. You didn't actually have to do anything particularly. You didn't have to run a club or really, you know, you can start a label, a brand in London, literally in the afternoon and be in the magazines sort of the next week. You just need to an Instagram account, really, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about how fashion's created. So you came from Lewis by Brighton up to the big smoke, seeking yeah. fashion, glamour and fun. What next? Yeah, no, I, th I think I've, I, I wanted to meet people like me that were sort of, I suppose I lived, I felt I lived somewhere quite small and provincial that there weren't other people around me that felt the same about how you dress, what you did, what you liked, what music. I wanted to find people that I could connect with and I felt those people would be in London because I'd read that in the magazines that I was reading um and I ended up moving to Croydon which is not quite London it's sub suburbia so it was quite interesting you'd be working during the day but going clubbing all night and then working all day and, and at that time I was working in a curtain factory making curtains <laughs> 
this humble stuff. <laughs> um, but I suppose you start meeting people, and what, you know, you'd call it networking now, wouldn't you? But at the time, you were just going out, getting drunk, and meeting people that you had an affinity with, or you liked, or you know, they were doing things, and you you wanted to help. I guess. Um, I mean, that's certainly how I ended up working for Alexander McQueen. Was we were both in a pub. We both got thrown out of the pub. Um, so we ended up going back to his flat. And then it was like before I knew it, I was sewing collections for him. <laughs> Which, you know, that isn't, I think now you might think, oh, that's what I want to do. Or I'd, I'd somehow make that happen. But I think it was just like, well, no, that's just someone we know called Lee that needs someone to make some garments. It's more of the Disney version, isn't it? Because it doesn't happen like that today. You'd be on LinkedIn manipulating people, trying to get an in. Yeah, I don't, free. I don't know. I heard a story this morning about one of our students that's very carefully managed to get himself in the position where now he's got this really amazing opportunity. But I thought, well, good for him because he put himself out there at various events and sort of made it happen. Do you know what I mean? Which isn't via writing a letter or an email or doing LinkedIn, but he was just... He ensured he was at the right places, I guess. So I think those things can still happen that way. Well, there's still no substitute for the old handshake and the, the firm uh, look and so forth. Yeah, I mean, he made himself, I'm, I'm being very circumspect, not telling you who it is and what brand, but I just thought, oh, actually, those, still, those things still sort of work, don't they? Because it's about how people connect on a personal level, I guess. Yeah. So you went from Curtain's, sewing stuff for alexander mcqueen what was that like uh interesting <laughs> i think it was interesting it was right at the more or less the beginning of his career so i think he'd been going for about three or four seasons so so there was no money i mean i thought i had no money at the time but he he really didn't have no money and but he also had that in a weird way there was the pressure to deliver because he had started making a name for himself so there was you know, the season that coming that was coming up, there was an expectation. But also, because there was no money, it meant you had to think of how could you be creative in a way that was still really creative, but on no money, but with also this external pressure. So I think it was um, really exciting for that. Do you know what I mean? Um, and my background, I'd already been working doing my own sort of fashion things, but also working the theatre on and off, doing props or costume, which Lee had also worked in costume. So I think we were both really good at taking any sorts of materials and making things out of them um, in terms of things that worked on a stage or a runway. Um, so I remember one night we were going back to the studio, which was actually a squat, and there was some um, plastic shrink wrap that was just on the ground, and before you knew it, suddenly that would be, that had become a dress. <laughs> and, and I think that was both of us had this idea that it was quite amusing that you could take something that was literally someone else's rubbish discarded on the street, change it by making it into something, and then suddenly it was suddenly had some other value or was perceived to have some other value because it had gone down a runway under a designer's name. So I think. Both of us found that quite amusing to do. <laughs> what would you describe the sort of clothes he was making at the time as? 
Uh, was it um, purely runway, or was it? I have no idea. I'd say confrontational, but I'd also say that thing about because because our background was both in theatre. I think we both understood within theatre, you can you can reference and tackle any sort of subject matter within theatre. It. Um, it creates a space where all those things can happen and those things can also be fantastical as well. So, you know, it can be kitchen sink, but it also can be theater, but it also can be fantasy and not many people have probably done that within fashion. I mean, they've certainly done the fantasy in terms of people like John Paul Gaultier or John Galliano, but I think McQueen really wanted to touch on things that were very dark uh, or horror or upsetting some of which were personal, but also I think some of those things were also because that area hadn't really been explored within fashion. So I think, you know, one of the quotes he said, I I want people to, to have a reaction, so I don't really care if they end up vomiting at one of my shows. At least I've got a reaction out of them. <laughs> now, now, clearly he wasn't working on the marketing side of things here. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I think it really worked in a way that, because no one else had, no one else, I think fashion's always wanting to, it, definitely women's wear, high end, wants to ingratiate itself, ingratiate itself with the audience and, and be perceived as being beautiful and nice and kind. And this was something that was saying the complete opposite of that. It was saying, actually, I'm going to present you some stuff that you're going to find quite troubling or unsettling or think, why on earth are you showing this in a fashion context? So although that was quite challenging for a couple of years, I think eventually he managed to change the discourse in, in terms of what was or was not acceptable within a fashion show. But is this fashion as opposed to sort of actually clothes you would wear? Well, you know, I, th I think this is the really interesting thing about Lee in those years, that he was doing shows that were really confrontational shows that was Highland Rape or The Hunger, um, which had quite dark themes. And yet his customer, he used to sell in a shop called Pelicano, was in women in their 70s, 80s and 90s. So there was a, the garments would be beautiful, but the presentation would show them in a really theatrical dark way. So strip away the presentation and actually the clothes are amazing. And, and I think I always think those customers that probably would never have seen the runway shows just understand what a lovely dress or a, a amazing bit of tailoring is. So they're responding to the garments. Right. That is interesting. So you were with him for a while. Yeah. Four seasons. <laughs> and then what, what did you go to from there? Uh, Sometime while I was with Lee, I, I went to St. Martin's to do the MA course, and education's changed a lot. So this was back in about 96, I think I started. And at my interview, I was just quite point blank told, you're, you're not just coming here to do Lee's printing, are you? And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not. I want to do the MA course. And of course, I did want to do the course, but I also was coming in to use the print studios to do Lee's printing. <laughs> Yeah. But um, I think it was a much more relaxed time within education because I think Louise Wilson, who ran the course then, she was really good at spotting people that would make the most of that opportunity. And actually, if the opportunity was just to use the facilities and the print studios, that was fine because she knew you were 
engaging, you were doing something and you were getting something out of it. Whereas I think if she thought you just wanted to be a studious student and do whatever she wanted you to do, she'd have taken really against you. Um, so she actually quite liked people that pushed back against her because um, she was a formidable character, really formidable character. Okay. And you were pushing back aplenty. I suppose I, I, you know, I used to see students sitting outside her office crying and they hadn't even been in. I was thinking, well, you've not even been in. Why are you crying? <laughs> but, but also I knew that her feedback was about challenging you, but also it was theatrical. Do you know what I mean? It was so over top, you know, saying that everything was you know, awful and had to be put in the bin and how dare you come in and show me this bit of rubbish and you were a troglodyte and that it was so over the top you couldn't take it seriously or, or I couldn't take it seriously. Um, and I suppose also at the same time I was working with the McQueen and doing my own thing. So I took what I needed out of that. And at the same time I was also working in a sex shop. So, um, like you do yeah <laughs> i was i was working in a sex shoot sex shop making things out of leather and rubber and i think she was so more fascinated about that than what i was doing in the studios on her course and also interesting enough the people in the sex shop were really really interested in this woman in this fashion course and what on earth was that all about so it was quite interesting how these two different worlds didn't understand each other i guess so during all this sort of which way did you end up going well i i, I did the course at st martin's purely because i wanted to show at london fashion week so if you if you work on that if you if you're enrolled on that course you get to show at london fashion week and that's what i wanted to do um which i did and i was looking back i was really precocious because i was the first student ever that had models that had changes of outfits because i had so many outfits i think i had about 17 I also had my own hair team. <laughs> I had my own hair team from Vidal Sassoon, headed up by Peter Gray, who at the time was a really great session um, hairdresser. And I think I had my own makeup team. And I had my own backstage photographer. <laughs> so it got to the stage that the, the show producer actually said I could call my sh part of the show because she, she said, you obviously know what you want to do, so you can actually send the models out. <laughs> um, but I suppose I suppose all of that was also about making the most of opportunity. I think I was I was older than most of the other students, and I kind of worked for McQueen. I knew what was in, involved backstage. I understood a small part of what you do is actually the garments. The much bigger part is how you um, how do you present that? How do you show that and how do you give that a story or a narrative and of course I'd, I'd had that from that working in the theatre I'd worked on um, Miss Saigon uh, Dangerous Liaisons quite a lot of shows that are all Shakespeare company so I realised actually that theatricality of the runway was actually something that was there to be exploited um, and so having control of that by having your own models and having your own hair and makeup was a way of having a much uh, purer narrative, I guess. Yeah. Did, did you make as big a splash as you hoped? Yeah, I was I was front page on the Guardian the next day, and um, in the tele, yeah, I got lots of press in all in all the 
or in all the papers, um, which is what I wanted to do because I think also at that time there was no investment in fashion companies. So the whole idea was create enough press that you can get the interest, that then you can get a backer, that then you can sort of try and set yourself up in business. Because prior to that, all the designers from the 80s, I think there'd been this cycle of boom and bust where people were successful for two years and then, you know, inevitably the businesses crashed. Um, so, so, yeah, I was in the first year I was successful, I managed to get a backer. So it, at the beginning, it all looked quite rosy and it was all going well and then <laughs> then, it, then it didn't then it didn't go so well <laughs> I, I i well two things happened I, I signed a deal with a japanese company a licensing deal and i knew that was the way to get investment in the business but some of the terms of the contract were really really restrictive and one of them meant that i couldn't produce any garments for, for retail um, without them having sign-off. So I ended up in this weird position where I'm still showing at London Fashion Week, but you couldn't buy my clothes because I'd signed this deal, which was, you know, it wasn't as bad as some people's deals that they've signed. Um, so I ended up in a position where I was, the next season I was closing London Fashion Week, so I, you know, which is perceived to be a good slot, but in reality it's not necessarily a good slot but you couldn't buy my clothes. So there was, I, I think that ended up looking like it was quite a lot of hype because, you know, you know, it was all about the show, but could you buy these garments? And I guess at the same time, I was seeing probably around the same time McQueen had signed his deal to go to Givenchy, but I think it was I'm trying to remember which designer. There was a very big name designer, Italian designer that had suddenly lost his name and his licensing deal to a Japanese firm. And I realized it didn't matter how big you got, you were still at the mercy of investors that could take your name away. And if all you had was your name, then, you know, was it really worth struggling in a really hard industry? Because unlike any other industry, you're a small designer, but you're still comp competing against, say, Prada. You're competing against Prada for press, but you're competing against Prada for production, and you're competing against Prada for the terms you might have with a stockist like Selfridges or Harvey Nichols or Harrods. Um, and you were really never going to win in that. Do you know what I mean? You know, you were always going to be back of the queue for production. You would always get the worst terms in terms of what you might get from a, a department store and your press, you were going to get good press if you could give them something that was iconic and strong but you also realize that if there was advertisers they would always get editorial so i think it's such an uneven industry to go into i think as a young designer mm, that corrupt side of editorial advertising is a, a tricky one yeah and i just think you realize there's all those things that are all sort of set against you as a young designer that i think particularly in London, which is always seen as about new talent, it's quite easy to hype that new talent. You know, when I came out of St. Martin's, I was the new McQueen. But six months later, when the next lot of graduates came out, they were the new McQueen. So that was great, but there was only really enough space for one McQueen to have a business, I guess, because, you know, there's only so many backers. You know, there's only so many brands that can be stocked within the space of Liberty or Selfridges. Um, 
And at the same time, I'd also started teaching. And I'd, I'd suddenly found I'd really enjoyed teaching because I think it, it was liberating, I think. It was liberating to be with other creative people but having other points of view in terms of their aesthetics or what they thought fashion could be. And that's basically where you are today, is it still? So you, you gave up on your fashion aspirations and became a teacher? Well, sort of, but I, I think I'm... I think... <laughs> I kind of think what I do... We sort of do it within education, but we try to ignore the education as much as possible. Oh. <laughs> because, and, and certainly in the last 20 years, education has become um, such a consumerist product because suddenly you're paying, you know, in the UK, you're paying £9,000 a year at least. And so your relationship with a course, unlike my course when I was at St. Martin's, I think I left owing £500, which I never paid. And actually, I never paid to be on the course because every day when I went in, security used to say, Grovesy, where's your pass? And I said, oh, I've forgotten my pass. But in reality, I didn't have a pass because I'd never paid any money to be there. And Louise Wilson was aware of that, but she didn't care. She allowed me to come in. And you certainly couldn't do that now. Do you know what I mean? You'd... But you still got your papers and so forth. Yeah. I, I, I struck a deal that I donated one of my runway outfits to the archive at St. Martin's and they wrote off my fees. Oh, that's good. <laughs> which, which unfortunately we can't do now with the archive as much as I might want to, mm. you know, that, that autonomy of being able to do that sort of changed many years ago. I expect when you're paying 9,000 pounds a year to go to study, you are kind of expecting to get a degree at the end of it, regardless of what you do. Well, and also I think what's happened in education is, you know, I think you learn through failure. Failure, you know, if if you're good at something but keep on doing what you're good at, you're not really learning anything. You're just repeating. And the only really way to learn is do something you've never done before. And if you've never done it before, you fail a lot. I, I always use the analogy of driving, you know, because we have this thing called the National Student Survey where they ask students if they're happy, did they enjoy the course? And I always think, well, when you're learning to drive, you want to come out of that having learned to drive. Great if you've enjoyed it, but enjoyability isn't what you're hoping to get out of it. And I think for me, education is transformative. And if it's tr really, truly transformative, at times it is hard and it's painful and it's scary and it's going into the unknown and quite a lot of those things aren't enjoyable um but it can be a pro, pro a process we go through together with the students so i kind of i also also say i don't teach what what we do is we do a process together and at the end of that process we've all learned something together and I really have learned as much as the students have learned. I've learned about my taste or aesthetics. I've learned about their taste and aesthetics. I've learned what the possibilities of what fashion could be because they've challenged me. So I think I can have those years of experience which enable me to give them different viewpoints or reference points, but I won't have what they have, which is a unique point of view because of how old they are and how much history they've got in that moment in terms of where they're coming to the world of fashion. Well, what are the subjects you lecture in? Uh, fashion design, and I suppose predominantly now 
because of the menswear archive, it's quite a lot about menswear. But I'm happy doing menswear, women's wear, uh, sportswear, accessories. It doesn't really matter. And that can be really commercial on high street. It can be high end and runway. It can be really conceptual. I like the mix. I really like having a classroom of students that all have, you know, 40 different points of view because, you know, in a selfish way, it's really enjoyable having 40 different opinions about fashion. And if, it was, if all they had was the same opinion because they thought it was what I liked, that would be really boring, wouldn't it? It would be just 40 versions of. So actually, I'm happiest when I'm working with a student that is the polar opposite of, of what I might like. What do you like? Well, and that's the other thing. I, <laughs> I, I rarely, I rarely discuss that. I, re I try to keep it as, you know, because ultimately what you want from a student is to realise it's not about pleasing me. Hmm. It's fundamentally about pleasing themselves as in terms of understanding who they are as a designer because I think it's very hard as, as a student to see what's happening in the industry and thinking, oh, Hedy main, what's he doing? That's that's suddenly, you know, really important of Virgil Abloh and thinking what he's doing at Louis Vuitton, maybe I should be doing that. And it's very hard to have, develop your own voice and stay true to that voice. And I think McQueen's a really good example. His was such a strong vision that at the beginning, people were, you know, all right, they weren't vomiting, but, you know, Elle magazine didn't run any editorial of McQueen for probably about three or four years because a fashion editor had been to one of his early shows and was so disgusted, had said, right, we're never featuring him again. But he was he was he was sure enough of himself and what he was as a designer, rather than thinking, well, I better change and appease, you know, and appeal to L. He was like, No, this is who I am. That's it, take it. And I think that's what I try to get my students to realise that you only have your own taste and aesthetic. That's all you have that makes you different. So you've got to find out what that is and be true to that because otherwise you'll bend and sway to whatever the fashion is. And, you you know, I, I sort of say you'd rather, you'd rather do a runway show that you really believed in and get a bad review than you try and appease what you think journalists might want and you could still get a bad review. And then you think, well, they didn't like it and I didn't like it either. So you think, well... <laughs> everyone's lost out that way haven't they whereas at least if you like it you know maybe it's about point you know getting the journalist to see it from your point of view i guess do you find um when you have a classroom of 40 fresh fledgling students do they have their own points of view and ideas and tastes some some do some don't i mean we used before covid i used to interview every single student that we took on the course purely because I thought, you know, if anyone makes the wrong decision, at least it's me. Um, and also I know what it is, why we've taken those students. And some of it's definitely about skills. You know, you can come with certain skills, whether they're drawing or, or making a construction, but I'd, I'm more interested in people's drive, ambition and point of view. And I think you really only get that out of meeting someone and getting a sense of, what they might get from the course. I mean, you, you know, you obviously reflect on yourself. So, you know, reflecting on me thinking what, what I wanted to get out of St. Martin's was to use the print studios. 
I'm quite, I'm quite open to students saying, well, I just want to come and use the archive. Great. You understand what's here and you understand what might work for you. What doesn't go down so well if students just come along and say, I want to get a first because it's like, well, what does that mean? You, you can't turn up at Muccio Prada's door and say, I've got a first, I want a job. It doesn't work like that. You know, I think, I think those qualifications maybe appease our parents. I know my parents were happy that I got a, a distinction, but I also knew that was meaningless. It, that wasn't going to open any doors. Um, so I think you want to try and cultivate within those students at the beginning to realize you'll all get a degree at the end, but the degree isn't the thing that makes you who you are and won't, get you where you need to get in the industry and that ultimately has to come from you do you uh, think most students come in with an idea that they're going to become a famous designer under their own name quite a few do yeah i mean we've interviewed students you know a couple of years ago what do you want to do when you leave you know question we asked and one of them said i want to be a creative director and i said oh what's that and they had no idea what it was. They they just wanted to be one. Um, and I think most of that is is the fault of the fashion industry because we're very good at presenting the the myth of the industry of a lone designer on a runway and somehow it's all that one person's creativity. Whereas, of course, the reality is this whole team of people doing all sorts of jobs to make that thing happen. And that's just the runway collection. It's not even the selling collection. So I think quite a lot of the work we have to do is getting students to understand the depth and variety of the industry and realize there's other roles that are better paid or more important or more interesting than, you know, the roles they've heard of. And probably also more attainable. Yeah, I mean, you know, the key one, you know, people have said for years is pattern cutter. If you're a good pattern cutter, you'll never starve because people are desperate for good pattern cutters. You know, we had one of our pattern cutters retired last year. And I think she was probably 73 years old and we didn't want to retire. So when she first came up to <laughs> retirement and she thought she was going to leave, we helpfully persuaded her to have a kitchen extension done and remodel her garden and then she said i've spent all this money i think i need to come back and work (laughs) (laughs) which was partly because she was so skilled and had so much knowledge but also she was so good at teaching pattern cutting which is a very hard skill to pick up that you know those people are few and far between so you really want to hold on to them Mm. so now, apart from lecturing in fashion design, you also run the menswear archive. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, that really grew out of the teaching because, you know, I look back at it now and think, how did I teach for 15 years without a teaching collection of garments? Because you'd say to students, you'd be looking at some of their designs and say, right, you've drawn this trench coat. Have you been to Burberry? Have you looked at the trench coats? No. Well, why don't you go down to Burberry and have a look at, look at their trench coats, see how they're made, how they're cut? Or actually, while you're doing that, why don't you pop into Dover Street Market and have a look at the ones in there from Celine or Balenciaga or whoever? And, of course, you were reliant as a tutor for that student to go there, see the right garments, be able to take them into a changing room and maybe try them on or take photographs without getting caught. You rely on all these things happening 
And then them coming back and saying, oh, I know, I see what you mean about how those garments are made. And I guess we realized it was much better to do that having actual garments. Um, and at the same time we were having that thought, uh, we were contacted by um, a couple of curators that were working with Massimo Osti, uh, who was the designer at CP Company in Stone Island, son, Lorenzo Osti. Lorenzo was because they had an archive and they were interested in how their archive might work with various universities around the world and what's the possibility of it being useful. And while those discussions were going on, I was thinking, well, why don't we just start an archive? Rather than wait for something to happen, why don't we just build an archive? And I was, I was really lucky at, just at that same moment that we were able to do some internal bids. And, and normally bidding for money is a really laborious process. You've got to get lots of people either internally or externally to agree. This, this was a bidding process that only lasted for one year where you could put in for any amount. And if the committee liked the idea, they'd back it. Um, so I put in a bid for £350,000. <laughs> a figure now I somewhat plucked out of the air um, to set up a menswear archive. And I'm, luckily enough, they they backed it and I probably had two years of starting an archive from scratch. So literally I think we started with about 10 garments and within two years, we probably had about 1500 garments. You should be able to get a few for 350,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a canny shopper. <laughs> I, I always joke that I, I managed to get a lot of nectar points on eBay by the end of spending all that money. Um, it, it, yeah, it was at the beginning was really the beginning was really exciting and probably quite easy because I knew which key pieces I wanted and I wanted really technical menswear. So I did want things like Stone Island or CP Company or Vex Generation because I'd seen what had happened with women's wear and women's wear collections of dress. So it's probably not that well known, but most fashion collections, certainly the V&A collection in London are highly gendered toward women's wear. So you'd probably say their collection is 70, 75% women's wear as opposed to men's wear. And within the men's wear and the women's wear, most of the clothes are very much clothes that belong to the aristocracy or the very wealthy or their couture. So this was about redressing that balance and saying, well, actually, not only is this men's wear, but this is everyday dress that might be uh, either workwear that you might wear because you work on British Rail or you work on the underground, or it's if it is designer menswear, it's everything from Alexander McQueen, but it's every version of Burberry that you might imagine over their hundred odd years history. Um, so it was really fortunate to be able to set up up from scratch but because it allowed it to have a very distinct point of view of how I wanted menswear to be framed um, and some of the things it started to question about maybe collections of dress that were women's wear. So how do you think it has ended up? Is it a good collection now? It's a fantastic collection. <laughs> Even though I say it myself, yeah, it is. It's a fantastic collection in terms of it had that amazing funding at the beginning. So, you know, most collections don't have any funding. So they're reliant on donations. And so it's very hard if you're relying on donations 
to shape a point of view because it's whatever comes into you. Whereas that allowed us to do all sorts of things that we probably wouldn't have been able to do if we didn't have some of that money. So we've got uh, garments from our alumni probably going back about 15 years. And we've been going back buying. So we're able to, so pre Alawalia that graduated three years ago, I guess from the MA men's where we've got uh, an outfit for her, uh, graduate runway collection so you know now she's doing amazing things uh as part of the things saint gucci are doing we've got a we've got this garment which is the very first collection she showed so it has that historical uh importance but more than that it's also aspirational for our students that say might be coming on the course now and only no Priya from her runway to say, but this is what she did while she was here. So you can see what's possible within our space and our equipment, our facilities. This is the standard of work that you can achieve. So I think that that's, that is incredibly rare to have that within a, a collection. Um, and just the different viewpoints of what menswear could or couldn't be, you know, I, I I can't think of another collection that mixes designer with industrial military garments. And for example, when I was up there earlier, I was showing some people around, we've got a, we've got a Burberry world war one officer's jacket, uh, that is an American serviceman had it made in Paris in the Burberry store in Paris during the first world war. Then we've got Burberry, from the 1960s and trench coats. Then we've got a white leather Burberry shirt from the early 70s, which is a very odd thing. Then we go into that period where Burberry becomes quite, <laughs> tries to be fashionable, but then gets labeled chav. And then we've got Burberry going all the way into Christopher Bailey, where it becomes high fashion again. Um, and I think the garment we've got there that really excites me is Christopher Bailey's last collection where we've got a piece that's a high-vis overall, workman's overall, but it's been made by Burberry. So it's got all the language of workwear, but actually all the branding's Burberry. So, you know, we can tell this insane story of what Burberry's been over those 100-odd years, and you wouldn't be able to do that in any what, any other space except for Burberry's own archive. Mm. Who's the typical customer for that suit, do you think? What, the Burberry high-vis? yeah. I, I think that only was for the runway. So that, I don't think that ever went into production. But I, I was lucky enough to go to that runway show. And Christopher Bailey had sort of, because it was his last show, it felt like he was going back to his roots where, as a student, he was just buying Burberry from secondhand shops and mixing it with other secondhand. So it was this weird mixture of things that you didn't know whether they were just styled in or were they Burberry or not. And I remember afterwards they did a reception and the model was still wearing it. I was trying to force the model to take it off so I could have a look and see if it was real or not. Um, and, of course, it turned out it was a Burberry garment. It wasn't just a bit of styling. It had just been amazingly recreated, I guess. And, and for me, I thought that was an interesting narrative to have within the archive, that a clear link between the industrial garments informing the designer garments and then, therefore, what is the value, monetary value, we put on those objects if they're, if they're both made out of the same material, nylon, if they're both the same cut, 
what sort of alchemy has happened to give this some other other meaning um and what monetary value might that be mm. now all the pieces in the menswear archive are of course sort of things you like and in your size no <laughs> there's a lot of things we don't like i mean that was the other p point of view we purposely made that i was saying to someone earlier the last thing i wanted the archive to be was good taste you know it could because we were buying at one specific moment you know two three years it I mean, yeah, it's hard to avoid it, but it shouldn't just be about this moment in time. It shouldn't be what we think is nice taste. So obviously there are some things in there that I think are great and, you know, maybe I'd want, but there's some things that are really bad taste. So, or, or, or at this moment are considered bad taste. So there's a whole collection of uh, British outerwear that's uh, Helly Hansen, Berghaus, Henry Lloyd, but they're all from the 80s, 90s. So weird in a way they've come back into fashion, but at the moment of us acquiring them, they were that borderline, are these nice, are these not nice? Aren't they very casual though? Yeah, but they're also slightly off. And I think <laughs> I, th I think what you want to do is people to question, oh, hang on a minute, what's this doing in an archive? Because we've been conditioned by other dress collections of thinking – this is all about upholding the highest standards of design or quality. Uh, and I draw an analogy with the National Portrait Gallery, which I always think is a collection of the great and the good, where it's not really the National Portrait Gallery, because if it was, it would have portraits of some of the un, um, unheroic people that are still intrinsic in the story of Britain. Do you know what I mean? So some of those people perhaps we shy away from should be in the National Portrait Gallery. So therefore, for the menswear archive, it should have some pieces that you think, why are they in there? So there was one brand, I'm not going to tell you which brand, but they came in and saw one of their garments in the archive and went, what the hell is that doing in here? And I... <laughs> And I said, well, because you had that reaction and because you do not like this, but we know it's important to your story. And maybe 20 years from now, you'll come round and you'll think, great, that's a great thing. And we'll have kept it. And you may not have kept it because you, as fashion does, you will constantly be rewriting your history. Hmm. Whereas we can have all the things that maybe you're uncomfortable with as a brand um, within our collection. I think that's very analog to uh, the way we're erasing history now, sort of removing things we don't like any longer or things that don't make us proud that we did. So it's best that that's glossed over. So, I mean, how many 90s shell suits do you have in the archive? Quite a lot, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the period we're finding really hard is late 80s, early 90s rave period because those clothes really were worn to death and discarded so it's it's kind of been really hard to find those garments so we want to tell it's you know, part of those subculture stories as well um but yeah you're right that thing about rewriting history when we did the invisible men exhibition i think most of the brands we were in contact with and out of courtesy we ran past some of the descriptions 
purely because we wanted to make sure we got the dates correct or, you know, whatever. And one brand said, oh, we really would rather you change your description of this garment. And I thought, well, I'm sure you would, but it's actually true what the garment is and what the intention was. And that's why I think we're in a good position because we can tell the narratives brands either don't want to tell or feel don't fit in with their current brand strategies. And I think we can take a much longer viewpoint and be more truthful. Whereas I think we probably know that fashion brands like to gloss over the truth or just bareface lie, don't they? <laughs> well, that's the marketing and the greenwashing versus the factual history, isn't it? Oh, completely. There's so many things. But, and also the, the other thing we've realized, there's brands that don't know their history because they've lost their history. So um, one of the garments in the archive, we spoke to the brand and, they, and it was an iconic piece. And they said, we don't really know anything about this garment. <laughs> they said, you'll have to speak to a collector in Greece. He's got a huge collection. He knows a lot more. He knew everything about the brand. And I thought, isn't that interesting? They've almost outsourced their brand history to someone else. And they've they've lost why that brand's – what's important about that brand? And it was a brand that was big in the 90s that had been sold on and probably sold on two or three times. And although they were trying to recreate that brand in the marketplace, without that knowledge of their history, they were failing. Sounds like Bell stuff. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> but, but it could but it could be any of those yeah. brands, you know, those brands that like to, you know, lots of brands like to play on their heritage, but lots of brands don't know their heritage and they need other people to tell them their heritage. And sometimes when they find out, they don't want the heritage they've got. Mm. You know, I suppose Hugo Boss is one of those, isn't it? It's like, you know, or... I don't know, I went to Adidas and, you know, Adidas in Germany, when I went, they said, this is a, th this building is a, was an American Air Force base. And you think, well, it was after the war, yes, but before the war, it wasn't mm. an American Air Force base, it was a German. Do you know what I mean? So I think mm. somehow within all of that, we lose the truth. And I think that's the important thing for me to to find out because, menswear hasn't had that moment and i think it's important that we do that right and, and we don't do the fashion version but we do a historically accurate version there are so many brands now that as you said have been sold multiple times and completely changed everyone who's involved in it and it often surprises me now uh, i know you've been working with cp company the last week or two right pro yeah. probably longer but how the massimo osti brands Massimo Osti being an Italian yeah. avant-garde, a very creative fashion designer uh, type guy, which is probably a poor way of presenting him, but uh, he died, what, 15 years ago? But yes. so many of the brands, say Stone Island, CP Company, have now changed hands a few times, but people are sort of still buying into the Osti myth, and they're also relaunching a couple of but to me at least, is quite unknown brands now again with um, Christopher Rayburn as a creative director. And it's sort of, does it still have anything to do with him? I don't, I don't know. I, mean, I think it's interesting because you've got this really hardcore fan base, which, no, you know, when we did the exhibition Invisible Men, 
I had to go to that fan base because I knew they knew more than me and I knew they'd be the first one to criticize and they'd do it on forums. They wouldn't tell me to my face anything was wrong, but they'd tell each other. And actually that knowledge is fantastic to draw on. Um, and I think they're the people you want to engage with. So I think that, for me, that was what, what was exciting last week about CP doing the exhibition in Darwin in Lancashire was we were in the middle of nowhere and although there were some amazing pieces in that exhibition, at the private view, there were even more amazing people on things on the people that turned up because they were all trying to outdo each other. And I think it's quite hard for brands like that to exist when you've got a, a really knowledgeable fan base that will be able to tell you the minutiae of, you know, someone corrected me this week about some labeling on one of the things. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> There's only so much information I can store in my head. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose we've added to that, haven't we? Because we've highlighted the importance of Massimo Osti, but also the importance of archives in terms of the Italian approach to design and also the importance of menswear per se. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 it's an interesting market, isn't it, in terms of what people buy into or what people don't buy into because you know i still buy i'm 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 drawn to brands that i've got a relation a historical relationship to but i still a really fussy customer when it comes to cut fit fabric all of those other things so i think you've got a much more informed customer that isn't necessarily just wanting to buy the branding which you might say is the case in terms of balenciaga if you're buying a balenciaga sweatshirt and jogging bottoms do you know what i mean which you know i find i find it kind of odd that i was reading a price Waterhouse uh, document the other week that was talking about sportswear and it said Balenciaga were a sportswear brand and I was thinking is that how they're now perceived how quickly they've gone from couture to sportswear <laughs> hmm. I find that the more I learn about cut and fit and fabrics and the making of garments the harder it is to actually buying anything because I'm finding it harder and harder to find anything that's actually worth the money. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, I found it harder in lockdown to buy stuff because, you know, I buy stuff so other people see it and appreciate it as much as I appreciate it. I also think, because I go to the football, so I think that thing about seeing what everyone else is wearing because they're wearing their Saturday best, I love that. And I love the fact that sometimes that's acknowledged, but, non-verbally so there was someone that i saw first game of the season that turned up at the pub and i thought my god that's a stunning jacket and i said nothing to him <laughs> but he knew <laughs> he knew he knew what i was thinking purely by the fact i didn't say anything and and i love all of that appreciation of in terms of what you're wearing and why you're wearing it um but yeah it's it, it probably does get a bit harder i also i i, I don't know about you but I buy a lot of vintage. So although I'm still buying lots of stuff for the archive, I'm still buying things for me um, because there's th things that I've bought twice. I've bought them for the archive and for myself and the things I've only bought for me and not for the archive and things for the archive and not for me. So it's quite complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I suppose 
I was going to say, but the plus side, the one thing about having an archive is you're never worried about fit. So, you know, when you're buying for yourself off eBay, you're thinking, oh, God, will this fit me? Is it too big to well, the archive? That doesn't bother me at all. So, yeah. That's just it's, pure collecting. Yeah. Mm. No, I can I can recognize that. I, um, I also found it. Um, I've d- recently discovered that if I was to only buy things that I could actually try on, inspect and feel beforehand i would hardly buy anything at all but buying online just reading the description again and again and again obsessing over the photos and etc and then it's just so easy to buy it well is that that friday night thing it's sort of nine o'clock you've had a bit to drink and then you're like oh god then i'll buy it because i think they know don't they they know what we do um I don't know, I was speaking to someone from Volback last week and, you know, I was saying that, that thing about you, that ease of being able to buy and that ease of being able to return, I think is important because we had a visitor today for the archive that's purely an online brand and they were saying that difficulty is how do you communicate to a customer the materiality of the garments and that's why things are a certain price point because you've used a better material how do you communicate that? Because you can really only tell that when you actually feel a garment, can't you? And think, oh, actually, mm. that's a really nice fabric. Um, so I think that's a challenge. And I, I also a challenge of the last two years where it's been locked down and we've had to buy things online. Yeah. Living in Norway, of course, it's like, well, <laughs> like post-Brexit Britain returns right. <laughs> abroad and it's like easy any longer. So you get stuck with stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so you were saying you go to the football um i suspect that means you're a hardcore casual and part of the sort of one-upmanship business what do you wear to the football uh, what i like about the football is the people that notice and don't notice so i sit next to people that i've i've had a uh Eitel Froop 20th anniversary millie migler jacket and it's only last month that one of them said oh god you're wearing that jacket again but they had no idea what it was uh. so i kind of i quite like i think with what i do both the people that really get it and also the people that have no interest so someone that i go to the football with said to me a couple of years ago what is it you do again and i said i teach fashion oh what do you do i said well we, we're in a room people come in wearing clothes and i say well that works that doesn't work and she went Oh, so you don't teach fashion then. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of quite like, you know, the obsessives that you can be obsessive with and the other people that don't notice it at all. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Maybe the ones in between are the ones I, 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 I don't like. <laughs> mm. You know, those people that constantly ask you how much things cost as if that's some, because either they will know how much things cost or or that's not the way to think about things really it's it's about the cut or the technicality or the innovation or the narrative the jacket you mentioned there the 2005 um uh, anniversary eight troop one that is the one massimo osti related cp company goggle jacket i would really like though right and what but- sold me on that wasn't actually the jacket itself it was the presentation of the whole project and i have been trying to get high-res um, images that i could print and hang up on the wall right of the fantastic drawings that were made for it and the photos i might have some of those i'll have a look later 
because we've also got a paper-based archive of, you know, ephemera of things. So I'll see if we've got that. Yeah. That jacket does turn up now and again. I think they only made about 300 of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm shocking. I like to – I I shocked the people in CP company. I think I tore as well because the first thing I did – I've got very short arms. So the first thing I did was chop the sleeves off and shorten it. And because of how it's designed, because it's got a watch view, you can't shorten it from the sleeve. And I think it's got something like a yoke. Somehow the sleeve, you can't alter it from the head. Mm. So the only thing I could do was chop it in the middle of the sleeve, which even for me was a bit of a, oh, this better go right. (laughs) That sort of goes into something that we've been talking about in my household recently, about how... I mean, you bought that jacket for you, you made it fit you. Mm. Whereas others would say, oh, you bought that jacket, you shouldn't change it because it will affect the resale value. It, it's sort of, it's damaging the future owner's enjoyment. Yeah, I don't care about that. It's like people that keep the trainer boxes or, do, 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 do what I mean? I definitely think I buy clothes to wear. The things I, there's things I don't wear much, but that isn't because I don't want to wear them. Um, because they're there to be worn and my enjoyment is a wearing them and other people seeing them and those discussions that happen where you see other people wearing things you go oh my god you're wearing that that's really exciting where's that from and so you know it starts those dialogues doesn't it Mm. and you can't do that if it's all just shoved at home and no one sees it um so yeah they're there to be worn and they're there to fit do you know what i mean so if it means i have to alter them that's fine Hmm. Now, when you're lecturing on fashion design, um, is there much focus on sustainability these days? Now, I just sort of throw that in as a very loose question, as sustainability means absolutely anything to everyone. Well, well, endlessly in one respect, because I think all the students feel it's something they should do. But I think what we try and do is get them to think about what does that mean and different ways you could be sustainable, you know, so... Weirdly enough, I do use that analogy with the CP company that people last week were turning up with jackets that were 20 or 30 years old. So it's not necessarily just about the material you use. It's about the longevity of those garments. So you could look at the Moreno Ferrari period where it's all in nylon and think, oh, my God, you're using nylon. That's not a sustainable material. But if someone's wearing that coat for 20 years, is that a better outcome than something that's worn? made in cotton or wool but it's disposed of after two years so i think it's getting students to think about process the whole picture of fashion the processes the design philosophy how you inform a consumer who you who your consumer is and how you get them to understand your approach to sustainability um because I think consumers aren't that informed. I think consumers are also confused as well, aren't they? Because there is there is hardly any hardly any clarity and a lot of a lot of information that I think is purposely confusing. Mm. So the other week, the latest purchase we got for the archive was the Lidl trainers. So Lidl came out with a pair of trainers, a pair of swimming shorts, and was it a t-shirt? No, a pair of socks. And all the packaging uses all these words about green and there's no actual claims. You know, it's got a language that's amazing, but are they doing anything at all sustainable? Probably not. So I think 
th those conversations about saying how can you actually explain what it is you're doing and why you're doing actually has a value and actually is sustainable in terms of how you treat people or materials or processes. Mm. I think that's what's important. I think a lot of the problem also comes in that it's all very, very negative. It's all don't do that, don't buy that, uh, and so forth. And I think people are just growing really tired of it without really getting the point. Well, also, I think that comes definitely in the in England. I think it's that Protestant guilt in terms of enjoyment and fashion is seen as enjoyment. So that's why, you know, first time you say to someone, oh, I like your dress, they say, oh, this, it only costs me. And then they tell you how much it costs. And you think, no, I've told you I like your dress. Mm. But you're trying to justify it in terms of its price. Um, and I think that's a very English thing. And it's a very negative thing. I mean, one of the most interesting conversations, I was discussing this with one of our lecturers in psychology, and he said, oh, we don't start with a negative, uh, a deficit model. And I thought, yeah, fashion does, doesn't it? It's always trying to justify itself. Um, and yet fashion's treated a lot differently than the car industry. And I think that's because they're both seen as highly gendered and because fashion is seen as very much a female activity and driving is seen as very male activity even though both are done equally by both sexes i think that's why fashion gets a lot of grief in comparison say to cars i think both of both cars and fashion are sort of i shouldn't say heralded but uh, uh, put forward as part of the major problems we have today i mean do many of your students ever express an interest in going into fast fashion no i mean <laughs> their experience i mean it's interesting one of them went on an internship for a, a huge company that makes i think billions of garments a year not even in millions and they were so horrified by the scale of the problem that they saw that they actually decided to, to not work in fashion anymore and they were a really amazing designer of that year. I would say they were easily one of the best designers, but they'd seen that world and thought, I can't make any difference to that world. Whereas I would argue, if you can make a tiny difference to that sort of company, it's a much better change than a smaller brand where you're only affecting 300 garments, which is making no difference whatsoever. Um, but I think they felt they were would be powerless in that situation. Mm. Do you, what do you think about the sort of emerging now sort of small sustainable conscious very green local i could probably add a lot, whole checklist of, of terms there brands wanting to save the world <laughs> i'm cynical about all of that I'm, I'm cynical because also i suppose it's it's a partnership, isn't it? If you go back to Savile Row, that partnership between you and your tailor and the outcome might be a suit, but actually what, you've, what you're paying for is that relationship. I think when those things work is when it's a relationship between a designer or a company and a community of people that like that work that are willing to pay a price that means that hopefully no one's exploited and also that really like those garments enough that they're going to keep them and they're just going to be worn and thrown away in a couple of months time so i think that model i can see as being sustainable whereas most of the fast fashion way of doing stuff which is 
every level of the industry is just about the constant drops, the constant must have and showing it off. And once you've shown it off on Instagram, it's dead. And then where do the, where do those objects go? Do they just then go back onto eBay or, you know, uh, it's, it's an odd way of viewing fashion, isn't it? Hmm. I have been trying to find out, um, there's this marketing thing about buying better and buying less. And to me, a part of this, a huge part, is also making stuff that you actually want to wear because it doesn't matter if you buy less, if you're not using it or whatever. But do you have any sort of ideas about making stuff that will be worn more, that will be enjoyed? Is there any sort of clue to how you go about that? Well, I kind of think better fabrics. You know, one of the things I was saying during lockdown, the first year of lockdown was suddenly we didn't have an audience only this sort of audience where people only see the sort of the top upwards which a meant lots of people were wearing shorts for nearly a year at home um but it also meant suddenly it was about the tactility of fabrics that were about you and being able to touch wool or silk or cotton and that became much more important than what visually things looked like to other people and i wonder whether that will make a change that suddenly actually, you know, there's nothing nicer than wearing something that's war or cashmere or whatever, because I think we respond, we respond because of that, the warmth that comes out of those materials as opposed to say a nylon. So I think maybe it's through the materiality that those things might change that, that we're more comfortable wearing garments made out of those materials. I keep seeing when I do my sort of walk arounds in shops that so many wool coats, for example, where they could have been made of Harris tweed or 100% wool, but they're still full of acrylics. Is that just fashion industry trying to um, save money or argue that it makes the coat last longer or... Why, why do you think these uh, fibres aren't being phased out? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Why are they mixing those fibres when you'd have thought, I mean, I don't know what you're like, but I'm always like, I kind of want things to be 100% whatever they are, even if that's polyester, <laughs> because it's like, I can understand you might want to mix things because they have a slight different property, but when you're saying something's, you know, 90% more and then it's got something added, well, what is that extra 10% doing that you couldn't just have from a wall garment? And actually, what does that mean in terms of the circular economy and how that thing can be recycled or not recycled? You know, it may be, maybe there's a really good case to say fibres really shouldn't be mixed unless there's a specific reason or is that, or is that something that should be taxed? I don't know. I, I, I can sort of see that socks are a case in point of mixing fibres. Mm. But apart from that, I think 100% is <laughs> is better. And well, you can get 100% cashmere socks if you want to, but they're quite expensive. And they only last one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I.e. quite expensive, yeah. yeah. But, um, Do you think it matters where things are made? Well, I kind of do. I, I mean, I kind of believe things, I suppose, a bit like farming. You know, things should be made where you live. Or, or there's no reason things shouldn't be made where you live. And I suppose there is that argument to say that some materials 
you know, naturally, if you think of Yorkshire in terms of when we're warm and whatever, things are better that where they are. But I think we've got so used to things being made all over the world and then being rebranded and saying they've only been made in one place. I mean, we did an exhibition early in the year where we did an exhibition of uh, designer COVID masks we'd collected for a year. And it was astonishing to see where those objects were made. They were all retailed in the UK, but they were UK, Portugal, China, Italy, and some of the brands were British brands, but they were getting them made abroad. And you're thinking, this was a period of lockdown where it was really hard to do anything, and you're making a cotton face mask, so a very simple piece of make, and yet you've got this made in Portugal. Why is that? And why couldn't that be done here? Um, and I, and we, we did that project really to, A, to see how how would design go into something that seemed quite banal or ordinary and would it become design which of course it did and also where those things might be made and we presumed they were all going to be made in local factories because surely that's the easiest answer and you know surprisingly that wasn't the case because mm, a lot of factories well i suppose everywhere really were having quite a lot of problems using up their capacity so presumably a lot of uk factories could have made them but obviously decided they'd outsource them and get them made elsewhere and then just ship them in. And it was quite interesting which companies would tell you where things were made or not. So, um, yeah. Because that is another, it, another point in question, isn't it? Because you have, I mean, say shoe companies where a lot of the work, almost everything apart from putting it in its box, is done abroad, but then proudly made in the UK by putting it in the yeah. box. So I was quite surprised that the ones from we we had some from Manchester City that produced some really early on, and I presumed these were actually going to be made in China or somewhere, but they were actually made in Manchester, which really surprised me. But then there was some brands that are based up there that are smaller that I thought, well, obviously they're going to be made in their factory because I know they've got a factory, and then it was like, oh, no, these are made abroad, and I'm like, yeah. So I think there's a lot more work, work to be done in that area because I think as consumers, I'd rather things were made. If there's facilities to make things near where I live, then I'd rather the things were made there because for all sorts of reasons, I think that's better for everyone. I'm constantly surprised by traditional brands who are known for making British say, shoes or whatever who then decide to outsource production to various low-cost countries in Asia. And I get the impression maybe that a lot of people don't care. It's only sort of super anorak nerds like me who <laughs> get all upset. I think there's a bit of that, but I also think, I think we're heading for a moment where we're going to have real problems with supply chain. You know, a number of companies have said that to me in the last month because of and I don't know whether that's just in the UK, because obviously we've got all the issues we've got at the moment, or actually is that going to affect everyone? So the ability to do f manufacturing abroad, but also sell things as a fashion product that has to be delivered on exactly the right date, I think it's going to come become harder and harder. And I think eventually all that offshoring is it's going to have to stop because 
again, this morning I've since had this conversation about saying, you know, when I used to go to shops, you would see something in a shop and be able to wait, or you'd see something in a magazine and you'd wait. And I think that that fashion time, I think people would much rather have a better product, better made, people treated better and all sorts of things. And if they had to wait for it, I think they'd much rather wait for it than be sold this fashion dream and then get it and think, oh, actually, it's really badly made and it's not worth the money. You know, I've got it very quickly, but actually what I've got isn't something worth keeping. I'm seeing a few brands now moving towards a model where everything they make is to order. And you can then specify also what fabric you want it in. And they will also take your measurements into account. And then it takes four to six weeks before you get it. I think that might be a step in the way in the right direction, sort of to make things more cherishable. Yeah, because the other thing I, last week I was saying that I think the key to sustainability is clothes having emotion. So a lot of people say to us they want to donate to the archive and they very rarely do. And that isn't because they don't want to give us stuff, but those garments have emotional bonds to them that they find very hard to let go of. And I think if we could either design clothes or allow people that buy them to create those emotional bonds with clothes, then they become sustainable because then they have meaning and memories and you keep hold of them and you don't just dispose them. But as soon as, you know, a T-shirt is the price of a McDonald's hamburger, you're just going to have a different relationship to it because you think it's disposable. But as soon as your relationship with the person that's made it because you've got a dialogue like a tailor would say, actually, could I have it in that fabric or this color? You've got a more meaningful garment that is special to you and more likely to be a one-off and you're more likely to cherish and keep. It's interesting because you mentioned you have short arms, which I also do because I'm short. Right. And having something made that actually fits me does feel so much better than having to buy something off the bag that doesn't really fit me. And of course, I mean, loads of expensive jackets and whatever don't really fit me because the arms are always too long. Yeah, uh, uh, dinosaur arms, my friend calls them. <laughs> well, you may have a bigger problem than I do then. <laughs> but when you were talking now about cherishable clothing, I did find this cardigan. It was by, from a Norwegian brand that I'd never heard of. I found it two or three right. weeks ago. Quite a remarkable mohair acrylic, probably from 20 years ago. But on the label inside, it said, and this is pure genius because it had me in such a good mood all day. It said, romance clothing. <laughs> It's the most brilliant label. I mean, all I want now is romance clothing. Exactly, yes. <laughs> it's just so on the nose. So what is your romance clothing? I mean, you mentioned your millimiglia. I don't know. It's, 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 it's an odd one. When you sort of teach fashion and do an archive, in a way the archives become quite a nice way to acquire things that are maybe grails that I might want. And for myself, it's kind of changes. At the moment, I've been thinking a lot about undesirable clothing. As in, I'm thinking about clothing that maybe is, is loved, but maybe is unlovable. So I'm thinking about things that artists or painters might wear that are 
overlooked or, or, or not seem to have much value? Just because I think it's quite interesting. We've spent, you know, these two years only being judged from the waist up. So we've changed what we've been wearing because we've not been wearing clothes for social occasions where there's an expectation or for an audience like going to the football. And so I've just been, not that I've been doing anything about it, but I'm thinking about that idea of undesirability in, in, in clothing. So, and I think that also comes from the fact I know I'm judged in terms of what I wear and what the idea of if you teach fashion, you're meant to wear, which sort of comes back to my friend saying, oh, well, you don't really teach fashion. You know, that disconnect because she looked at me and thought, no, no, I must have got this wrong. Um, and I think that's one of those things you can play with, you know, people's perceptions and what, how you might dress or what you might wear. So, yeah, I can see the problem, especially when you get snarky comments from strangers at the football about wearing a same jacket twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the menswear archive is that something people can come and visit, or is it uh, by invitation only? Yeah, no, anyone can visit. So we were closed during COVID. We opened again about a month ago. So if people go to the, our, our website, you can just send an email and make an appointment, come in. And it, it's fantastic because actually what happens when people come in, they just react to the clothes and then suddenly we get these amazing stories about, oh, actually, I remember this garment or this. So the stories we've had, we had someone that suddenly said, oh, actually, I printed We've got some early McQueen with tire prints on, and someone came in and said, that was actually the tire from my Volvo. He borrowed it. <laughs> Quick, write that down. Uh, we had a designer that told us all about this range that she did that we, we hadn't even been able to capture before. So I think, you know, it's what I like about the clothes, it becomes a two-way dialogue, doesn't it? Because they spark memories off from people. And also we're able to ca capture that information so there's, there's, there's a better knowledge base for us in terms of the archive and the history of menswear. So I think that's why it's really important that it's open to everyone to come in, that it's inclusive, it's not exclusive. And that's why I think it covers every type of menswear. So it's not just design, it's every day, it's everything. Sounds like you're also capturing a lot of history that, might have been deemed too trivial to capture before. Yeah, but I always think that thing about who whose history is, is elevated and whose dress is elevated and who are we told, you know, have style or don't have style. And I think one of the things I wanted to do was make it far more democratic and more negotiated maybe because I was very aware that at the beginning it was just me and my viewpoint. And the last thing I wanted it to be was just, that because I think you know I won't be here sometime in the future and it needs to outlive me and it needs to become something that's useful for generations afterwards so it needs to do lots of different things and capture lots of different histories to become useful. It makes me think a bit about all these great music books we're seeing these days about 70s 80s 90s the full stories of stuff we never knew back then but would have loved to know but now we're sort of getting the full full history yeah i mean you know one of the things i'm obsessed by is manufacturing so i think one of the projects we've just started on is trying to capture some of the manufacturing stories from the uk where we've got workwear garments or military garments and they've been made but that information about 
where those factories were, what they made, how, you know, quite a lot of that hasn't actually been researched. And I think it's some of the research we need to do because it's social history, but it also it tells you the history of those objects that we've got because that's important to their narratives, I guess. Okay, Andrew. I've really enjoyed our chat. I see we've been talking for well over an hour and 20 minutes now. <laughs> so I think I'm going to let you get on with your day. Is there anything you'd like to mention? Anything you'd like to bring up in closing? No, just like you said, the archive's opened everyone. I really encourage people to come in because I learn a lot from when people visit. And, you know, it's open to industry. And, you know, what I say to industry, it, they help inform the collection. And I also think when anyone comes in and says, but this is great, but why haven't you got, it's a great thing for us to think, oh, actually, they're right, we should have this in the collection. So I think it becomes a, it becomes a better collection for having those other viewpoints um, in terms of what should be in there. So I really welcome that. Should guests beforehand uh, check out the website, go through the list of stuff you do have, then try to wear something that you haven't thought of yet? Well, yeah, people do come dressed up. I'm buried, someone wore something very good the other week that I was like... And, and a bit like the guy at the football, I said nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm such, but, such an anorak that I'm deadly curious now. What was he wearing? <laughs> first, first season, Stone Island. Oh, big flex. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew. And um, Thank I you. hope to visit the archive soon. Nice to speak right. to you, Nick. Bye-bye. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to uh, Andrew Groves for being my guest this week. You can find him on the web as andrewgroves.com. You can also find uh, the mensweararchive.com on the internet. And you can find uh, Andrew on Instagram as Prof Andrew Groves. If you'd like to get in touch with uh, me, it's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. And uh, there's the blog at predictablywelldressedad.com. If you'd like to uh, suggest guests, support the podcast, um, comment otherwise, do send me an email, welldressedad at gmail.com. And uh, I would be very grateful if you'd leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. If you like it, that is. If you don't like the podcast, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and until next week, bye-bye.